Hello, everyone. It's September 15th, 2020. So big show this week. We're talking about ULA's recent hot fire abort, Astra's in-flight termination, and we have Dr. Barracola on the show from Carbice Corporation. The future of carbon nanotubes on spacecraft is looking very promising. Let's find out why and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 276 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. If my audio sounds a bit weird, it's only because I have a fan going, which is only because I don't have any AC at the moment. So sorry, guys. But uh, yeah, you won't hear that in the background, but it might affect the quality of my audio. Don't know why I felt the need to mention that, but I just wanted to say that not having AC sucks, but hopefully it'll be fixed today. Yeah, it's it's funny. Podcasters are always uh, apologizing for their audio. Yeah. And like 90% of the time... Nobody else can tell. Uh, I think possibly because, you know, <laughs> we listen to so many mixed audio sources when we're listening to podcasts. You jump from one show to another and they're mm. all, mm. you know, they're all different and nobody mixes the same. But when it's your show and you edit the audio, you definitely notice. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's kind of like when you drive your car, you know, when it makes a weird noise, but no one else does. So right. it's the same thing. Well, it's it's funny because my car right now, um, I need to get new tires driving across the country to took the last little bit of life out of my tires. They were balder than I thought that they were before the trip. I knew that they were getting bald, didn't realize how bad they were. And so the entire trip, we were just putting up with really bad tire noise. It kind of locked in that it was for sure tire noise for me after it rained really hard and the car was silent because all of a sudden the tires were wet and they were nice and quiet. (laughs) So, but this is a noise that you don't have to be familiar with my car to hear is loud. <laughs> because of the recent ULA hot fire abort, that has been figured out. So uh, I'm happy because uh, I was yeah. really curious as to what's going on. Yeah. And it was speculated that it was a problem with the ground equipment. And it looks like that that's, you know, what it was. Yeah. So the, the first thing that we heard was that uh, it was confirmed to be ground equipment. Um, it was a high pressure helium regulator. So, um, you know, it, when you hear regulator, you're usually thinking of scuba equipment, and this is basically the same thing. So it's a pressure regulator on the helium line. It's a piece of equipment that takes very high pressure, in this case, helium, and regulates it to a lower pressure, but a very consistent pressure, right? And so um, this is a pad helium regulator for um, spinning up the turbines in the engines. And so there's three, one for each of the engines. And during the startup sequence, they, you know, blow hydrogen uh, through the turbo to start the engines. And it was confirmed that one of the regulators didn't provide enough pressure. And so the center core's engine, the turbine in the engine couldn't get up to speed. So the engine couldn't ignite. Uh, We couldn't start that self-perpetuating physical uh, mechanism. Um, and so they, the vehicle detected the shutdown or that the engine wasn't starting up properly and went through the shutdown sequence. And this was absolutely the right time to do a shutdown. There was no, um, bad data coming in from somewhere. It, it, this was an actual issue that, that would have prevented, um, the rocket from going to space. So in fact, there was a tweet from Tori Bruno and, uh, he said that, uh, he said found root cause of pad side stuck regulator torn diaphragm. 
which can occur over time, a verifying condition of the other two regs, we will replace or rebuild as needed, retest, and then resume towards launch. Mission success is the first priority, currently no earlier than 18th of September. So one thing that I need to be reminded in, I guess like either of you two can tell me because I can't even remember, I get too many launches confused. Did the engines not ignite at all? Because I thought that they did and there was a hold down and then they shut it down or was there no engine start at all? Yeah, so there the, there are three cores on Delta IV Heavy and they start them up one at a time, left, mm -hmm. center, right, I believe. It might be right, center, left. And so if you listen to the audio, you actually hear three uh, three bangs as the engines are beginning to start up. Um, and you actually do see exhaust flowing down below the pad. And so my understanding is that uh, the left and right um, started up properly in the center, never uh, never reached full thrust. I don't, I don't believe it actually hit ignition, but because of the timing, I believe the two outside engines did come online. And that's just me guessing from what we see and what we hear. But yeah, the, the center engine, uh, didn't ignite as far as I understand. Okay. So yeah, cause that's kind of what I was wondering because I mean, had it ignited at all, that should have been enough to get it going because you just have to, you know, get that process mm -hmm. going. Um, but I guess mm -hmm. it didn't come on at all, which would make more sense because I guess it sort of operates kind of like a start card for a jet engine, right? You know, kind of the same concept. Mm -hmm. You got to have an, you know, external piece of equipment to get it going or push it down a hill. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just get get that get that self perpetuating reaction or you know mechanical action started mm -hmm. and then it can take off. Um, so it it might be the case that the center engine did start, but because it started slow, it didn't get up to chamber pressure fast enough. Yeah. So the thrust was low. So that that may you know it may be the case that they could have lifted off and it would have gotten up to to full thrust in flight, but uh, that's not what it sounds like from what I've read. I did a line here that the rec from the reporting that the uh, requisite start conditions were not met to proceed with the ignition of the core booster, but um, in any event, if it was just the side ones or not, they, uh, there was certainly the fireball there that you see mm -hmm. from, <laughs> mm -hmm. from burning all the hydrogen. So um, do you guys know what this diaphragm is that he's talking about? I do not. I only know from the tweet that it is torn. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the way, the way a regulator works is you have a, chamber and you know it's like a flat disc um, with metal on one side and a diaphragm on the other and the diaphragm is held down to restrict the size of the chamber by i don't know a, a spring usually and there's usually like a, a knob that you can turn to adjust the tension on that string on that spring and as the pressure goes up the diaphragm will raise up and increase the size and as the pressure goes down the diaphragm will flatten out um, and reduce the size of that chamber. And so that um, the diaphragm actuates a valve. And so as, as the diaphragm pulls up, it closes the valve. As the diaphragm goes down, it opens the valve. And so it can maintain a, a steady pressure. I think that should be fairly easy to... Um, to visualize. Oh yeah, Dennis, you, you've got a, a link to Wikipedia and there's some really good di diagrams in there. But, but that diaphragm is constantly moving up and down, right? It's expendable. Uh, it's a consumable, right? It's, mm. it's only going to last for so long. There aren't things that are flexible that can flex regularly during normal operation and last forever. And so, so that's what, what tore, which means that the whole system doesn't work. The The valve is going to stay, I'm assuming in this case, the valve fails closed, resulting in lower pressures instead of mm. letting the high pressures of the of the storage tank, the inlet, yeah. pass through. And, and even though we kind of already concluded that this is uh, 
uh, ground equipment, but that's also consistent with reuse, right? I mean, if this was mm -hmm. on board the rocket, then it wouldn't have been worn down, mm -hmm. right? Good point. Yeah, good point. So before we move away from this, I wanted to point out that this is the this is uh, Enroll 44. This is the fifth to last Delta IV heavy mission. Um, Delta IV is on its way out. So after this mission, um, which is flying out of Cape Canaveral, um, there are two more Enroll missions planned to fly. Those will be out of Vandenberg. And then um, two more Enroll missions after that planned to fly out of Cape Canaveral. And that'll be where they retire Delta IV Heavy. Um, Delta IV Heavy and Atlas V are going to be replaced by Vulcan. And just, just to give you some quick numbers, Delta IV Heavy can fly 28.8 metric tons to LEO. Vulcan Heavy can do 27.2. So, and that's, that's Vulcan Heavy. So Vulcan with, uh, I think it's four strap-on boosters is, is the heavy configuration. And, uh, and, and there, you know, ULA is like, well, Vulcan Heavy can do all the work that the Delta IV Heavy can do. So we're going to go ahead and replace replace this older vehicle. Um, this will be uh, 15 missions total. Uh, assuming that they don't have any failures, Delta IV Heavy will have a very clean record. They only have one partial failure on the books, and that was just the core boosters. Um, what do they call it? Common cores. Uh, they underperformed, I believe, on the first mission um, and put their payload into a slightly lower orbit than intended. But other than that, you know, it's it's a very successful vehicle. And 15 missions is a lot for a super heavy lifter. You know, this is <laughs> mm -hmm. this is a storied vehicle. Well, so um, Vulcan heavy. So this Delta four heavy is considered a super heavy lifter. Vulcan heavy is also. Uh, in the super heavy class, but don't let terminology confuse you because Vulcan heavy is solid boosters, as well as Delta, uh, Delta four heavy is three liquid, uh, stages. Well, a tweet came out this week from Tori Bruno where he actually teased, uh, a Vulcan super heavy, which is a variant of Vulcan with three cores. Um, and no solid. So something that looks like Delta four heavy or Falcon nine heavy, uh, Falcon, Falcon heavy. And, uh, they, Tori said that it was the result of a routine ongoing trade study. So, you know, don't, don't expect this to actually be a reality, but you know, we're just testing it out, seeing, uh, what, what the possibilities are. There'll be a link in the show notes to the tweet. Note the uh, flip-flops in front of the model. Oh, this tweet This tweet is from July. Oh, okay. But uh, Vulcan Super Heavy, uh, we don't know uh, what the math says it can do, but, you know, Delta Four Heavy doubles the capacity of a Delta Four with no strap-on boosters. Falcon Heavy more than doubles the capacity of a Falcon 9. So, you know, we don't, mm. we don't know what, what this is going to look like, but... Imagine going from 27.2 metric tons to Leo to what? 54.4, <laughs> like 54 <laughs> tons is pretty intense. Uh, I think the real question here is not whether they want to make it, but whether there's anybody who would pay for it. I mean, consider that a super heavy like Delta four heavy is only going to be flying 15 times in his life. 
uh falcon heavy mm-hmm. has only flown what twice mm-hmm. um so you know it, it are there any customers who actually would take advantage of this and that's the real driver of that decision i believe as spacex has found out it's much harder to integrate three cores than you know you would think so maybe it's not going to be super easy to do so it, it really has to be worth it you know um mm-hmm. and i just don't know if you know, they can justify doing all of that work uh, for a small handful of missions. But also uh, consider that they've been flying Delta IV Heavy for longer than Falcon Heavy has been flying, and they mm-hmm. solved all those problems for Delta IV Heavy. So, you know, they it's not like they don't, it's not like they're going to run into too many unexpected results. They know you can't just, you know, uh, do the Kerbal Space Program math and run away. You actually have to build a heavier center core. Yeah. I guess it comes down to exactly what the nature of the issues are, and I don't know what they are. I figured it was just going to be difficult no matter what. But I mean, yes, if it's something that just comes from experience, which they have, you know, with Delta IV Heavy, then sure. Um, but I figured it was, it just came down to, you know, like all the little gremlins and the details of a new vehicle. So. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. There are little, you know, little detail gremlins. But from what I understand, SpaceX's issue was not uh was underestimating the amount of additional structure they would have to add to the center core. They really have to bulk that thing up because, you know, suddenly it's not um supporting or it's not putting all of its thrust upwards. Suddenly it's it has to support thrust coming up through the sides of it from the side boosters instead of just from its engine upward. So it, it really is a configuration that wants to to put, you know, shear on the on the tank in a way that a straight rocket really doesn't. When Peter Beck was just talking about right the April Fools joke and having mm-hmm. three cores, you could just tell in his voice he does not like that style. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. Well let's translate on over to our next topic and that is Astra's Rocket 3.1. So uh, this latest launch from Astra was terminated during its first stage ascent. But as I understand it, this is further than they've ever gone before, right? So mm-hmm. we're looking at progress here. So that's good. Does anyone recall, I'm sure someone in the chat does, how many more attempts they can make because they're kind of coming up on some budgetary problems, right? Yeah, so um, this is their third launch. Um, they did two suborbital launches on Rocket 1 and Rocket 2. And then Rocket 3 was initially, uh, the mission was titled One of Three, right? Because they were planning on doing three attempts uh, at getting to orbit after their two suborbital launches. One of Three was destroyed uh, in a pad fire, right? Um, mm-hmm. So this is Rocket 3.1. And it, they got farther conceptually because they were actually shooting for orbit. I don't remember how high their suborbital launches were. I'm not sure of the altitude, but as I recall, the rocket did make it beyond the spaceflight complex itself. Like it never left the property, you could say. I mean, you know, that could still be very high because it's just, you know, a suborbital launch and maybe it was meant to just go straight up and come right back down again. But it, it didn't get very far. I do know that. Yeah, the, the first one, I don't know how much, well, I guess maybe from the telemetry they knew but like the first one was the one that kind of got lost in the clouds was my understanding if i remember Mm. correctly and then the second one is the one that rained down you know some debris within the spaceport so like you say i couldn't have gone too far downrange if it still rained down within that footprint but yeah they both of them were successful for what they were trying to get out of them Mm. so right well and and uh rocket 3.1 was was also a success they are Mm saying you know we we learned a lot it, um there's a link to their blog post and and they're like yeah you know we what they were trying to do 
was get all the way through their first stage burn and all the way through second stage separation. And then what happened from there, they kind of were like, well, maybe it'll get to orbit, but you know, <laughs> there's a good uh -huh. chance it won't. And so they, they didn't uh, get all the way through their first stage burn, but they um, uh, apparently, you know, uh, uh, learned a lot from my guess would be just getting to you know, the point where they actually lifted off the pad from there, you know, they probably learned some things about guidance, but just, just getting to that point, um, probably taught them a lot. Um, so mm -hmm. let, let me read some quotes. Um, first, uh, the blog post says the entire launch system was deployed by six people in less than a week, which is completely unprecedented. And that's, that's pretty cool. And I think that's, you know, what that is awesome. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I know it it's like six people in less than a week. <laughs> Right. Um, and then their description of, of the failure uh, goes like this, quote, early in the flight, our guidance system appears to have introduced some slight oscillation into the flight, causing the vehicle to drift from its plane trajectory, leading to a commanded shutdown of the engines by the flight safety system. Um, and so, you know, it, it would have been really nice if they could have got through their entire burn and separation. But, um, you know, we're we're looking at uh, good momentum. Uh, going into rocket 3.2, which, you know, would have been flight three of three, um, but because they had a pad fire, hmm. um, rocket 3.2 kind of, I think they stopped using the one of, uh, mm -hmm. designation, but, uh, 3.1 would have been rocket or would have been flight two of three. And then 3.2 would have been three of three, but now they've added another flight on. So I, all that to say, I think your speculation that they're kind of beginning to run up against budget issues is, is probably pretty astute because already we've seen them have to add um, a, an extra an extra flight. Um, you know, SpaceX, it took them four or five. I think four. Four. Yeah. Four. Right. Right. They four. The fourth flight was the make or break flight. And then the fifth was like a. Mm -hmm a bonus as it were. And then they moved on <laughs> yeah. to Falcon nine. So, you know, this is the first <laughs> Sam, Sam in the chat says, uh, can we say an extra flight when the first one didn't actually fly? Yeah. Right. So, you know, this is, this is the first orbital attempt, technically the second orbital attempt. If you, you know, count a pad fire as as eating up one of those, because, you know, certainly it costs just as much money. <laughs> right. So yeah, you know, we're probably we're probably beginning to to bump up against that, but they're, you know, they they appear confident that their funding will last for another two orbital flights and they expected to make three attempts at least before they uh actually made it to orbit. So, you know, it, it, we probably shouldn't be overly concerned, but yeah, you know, the money is always an issue for everybody. So they might only have so much money to continue operations in general. I don't know if that's the case, but it seems like it might be, you know, through like they have a certain fiscal budget and it can get them through you know a certain part of next year and then after that regardless of whether or not there's a flight or not they would have to shut things down and that's just because you have a facility to operate you have people to pay so on and so forth so like you really have to get things going at some point because you have to become solvent and actually start flying rockets they, they can well yeah they won't they won't break even for a while but yeah i know what you mean mm -hmm. um they they can also go seek more venture capital yeah. funding i mean like that's you know, funding rounds are something that everybody does. And, you know, they, even if they, even if Rocket 3.2 is successful and, you know, they have a bunch of flights lined up, they're still going to need additional funding. You know, a lot of, I, I don't, I say needs, I don't know this for sure, but, you know, most 
operations like this do have to seek funding even after they have started bringing in paying customers. Which is easier to do though, like once you're successful. And, and I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. Is well, just yeah, that, once you know. you're proven, right? Exactly. Uh, absolutely right. So, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about that pathway. Um, their next flight is Rocket 3.2. Um, the vehicle itself is uh, nearly complete, but they haven't done any testing on it. So they're going to need to wrap up construction and then uh, get on to testing. And uh, the blog post link says that it's going to be a few months minimum uh, before their next attempt, their next launch attempt. Um, but, you know, from everything I can, everything that I'm reading from the company, they sound uh, optimistic that they're going to see a successful orbital flight. Uh, in these next two flights, they, you know, they's, they're pretty happy that three launches is going to be enough to to get them up and running. So best of luck, Astra. We're we're rooting for you. Six people yeah. in a week. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> that's very, that very good. wild. I didn't know about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, so let's do five short and sweet, so maybe not quite so short. Where do we start? What's the first one, Ben? All right, Juno Eye's extended mission goals. So exciting. Juno's primary mission ends in July of next year, when it will have completed 34 science orbits. Remember that Juno's period was intended to be reduced from 53 days to 14 days, but due to the main engine's sticky helium valves, that orbit lowering was not completed, and the primary mission was extended to allow for the same number of perigoves. Right now, the spacecraft is planned to be deorbited at the end of July, and by that time, its initial equatorial orbit will have shifted to 28 degrees, and a possible mission extension uh, will see the inclination reach 63 degrees uh, by 2025. Should the extended mission be approved, uh, the team intends to make two close flybys, first of Ganymede at 1,000 kilometers, and then of Europa at 320 kilometers. This latter flyby would obviously benefit both the Europa Clipper and JUICE missions. Additional goals uh, include observations of the rarely studied Jovian rings, as well as fantastically low altitude observation of Jupiter's North Pole. Next up, Boeing to be investigated by independent ethics probe. Boeing has struck an agreement with NASA and the U.S. Air Force that involves the investigation of the company over its lunar lander bid, a bid that ultimately forced the resignation of NASA's former human exploration office chief, Doug Levero. By agreeing to allow an independent review of its compliance and ethics practices, Boeing will stave off harsher consequences from the government, such as being suspended from bidding for future space contracts. Levero is currently the subject of a federal criminal investigation about whether he improperly guided Boeing executive Jim Chilton during the human lunar lander bidding process. Next up, NASA offers to buy commercially obtained lunar samples. So this is really neat. So NASA put out a request for quotations on lunar sample return missions this week. The prices offered were 15000 through $25,000 per sample, with a total of $50,000 set aside for the total program. While this offer won't be enough to motivate new missions, it isn't intended to. Administrator Bridenstein said, what we're trying to do is to make sure that there is a norm of behavior that says resources can be extracted and that we're doing it in a way that is in compliance with the Outer Space Treaty. The OST prohibits territorial claims off-world. By obtaining these quotes, NASA is seeking to establish the ideas that the resources can be extracted and sold without making a treaty-breaking territorial claim. Uh, next up, China's mystery spacecraft returns to Earth. Two days after it was launched inside a fairing atop a Long March 2F, China's secret reusable spacecraft returned to the ground on September 6th. 
This spacecraft is believed to be a winged craft similar to the X-37B, but that is yet to be confirmed. While the intent of the mission is still unknown, it was almost certainly a technology demonstration slash checkout flight. However, it seems like an additional mission goal was to deploy a satellite of some kind. Two orbits before coming home, the mystery space plane released an unknown object. The satellite is still in orbit and has raised itself one kilometer. It's possible that this new satellite is a Bangxing spacecraft, which crewed Shenzhou have released in the past. Finally, Northrop Grumman cancels Omega. After failing to win a recent national security space launch contract that ultimately went to ULA and SpaceX, speculation began immediately that Northrop Grumman's Omega rocket program would be terminated. Designed for the sole purpose of competing for that contract, the company has now officially announced its cancellation. While the solid propulsion rocket is no more, Northrop Grumman's solid motors will still find homes in a number of upcoming next-gen rockets like Vulcan Centaur and SLS. The company also received some good news this week, a $13.3 billion contract for a new ICBM. It's biggest contract to date. Uh, Dennis, you, you mispronounced it. The name of the rocket is Omega. <laughs> okay, so this week uh, we have with us Dr. Baracola of Carbice Carbon. That's the name of the company, right? Did I say that right? Because I'm looking at it thinking it might be pronounced differently. Two things. It's okay. Baracola. So think about going to the bar. And it's the combination of carbon and ice. Ice. Okay, so, so it is car ice. Carb ice. Carb ice. Okay, because I was thinking it might be like carbiche, but I was like, this isn't an atomic company. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get that every once in a while from very, very hungry yeah. people. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I was gonna say this isn't this isn't ISA. It's not right, right, right. <laughs> when you get the Italians involved, then it's carbiche. <laughs> <laughs> then it's Carbiche, yeah. It's inter interchangeable. But yeah, so uh, tell us a little bit about this company because uh, you're doing some very interesting things um, and just, you know, like give us a brief intro of uh, what you're all about. Yeah, I mean, so basically I used to work uh, as a thermal engineer in industry uh, at Intel, who also funded my PhD. And one of the things I learned during my brief stay is that there really has never been a thermal interface product developed for the market. And what, what I mean by that is that every electronic device generates heat as a natural part of its operation. And in order to maintain performance and reliability, you need to have a way to get the heat out. And they have these things called heat sinks or, or cooling systems. But all of these systems don't work unless you can stick them or glue them to the heat source. We solved that problem because no one's ever really focused on developing from the bottom up materials that uniquely conform between two surfaces and can conduct heat efficiently. And that's really what Carbice does. And by doing that, we introduce, you know, typically in this market, people think about thermal interface materials. So you have these big chemical material companies that sell glues and adhesives and pads, and then engineers turn them into solutions. We sell thermal interface products, which is the refinement of materials into solutions that actually solve the problem. And, and that's really what Carbice does. And, and by doing it this way, you know, for satellites, for example, we enable them to solve the payload integration problems, but also do it with a material that is respectful to the requirements of manufacturing, rework, and it has all these things thought about in the design of the product. Yeah. And so, and so your product is called Carbice, but you got a couple of different versions, right? There's Carbice Carbon and. Is, well, is so correct? the company, the, the company is Carbice. Right. The product is Carbice Carbon, um, which is the way that we make our material. It's our core. It's a composite of aluminum and 
aligned carbon nanotubes. And the reason we call it carbides carbon is because people have been wanting to utilize aligned carbon nanotubes for over 20 years, but there have been many practical challenges with industrializing and bringing that technology to market. So the carbon nanotube is this very tiny filament that's only tens of atoms thick in diameter, and it's made of carbon and carbon-carbon bonds, which makes it the highest heat conducting material in the world. And so hmm. we have actually, with our manufacturing technology, figured out a way to align it because it's one directional. It's like a, it's like a hmm. piece of spaghetti and the heat goes up the noodle, not the other way. So if you want to hmm. really utilize it, you have to align them. And we basically make carpets of this on both surfaces of aluminum foil. So that composite, the ability to grow the carbon well anchored into the aluminum is what we call carbized carbon. Now, the carbized carbon comes in different flavors. So what, what I say, guys, is that ultimately we have various donut glazes, so to speak. We got, <laughs> we got, we got, we got strawberry, chocolate, vanilla, and you know the strawberry we use for space applications because that glaze is uniquely low outgassing, rigorous to the space environment. Uh, we may use the chocolate glaze for semiconductor manufacturing where there's a lot of make and break interfaces and it adds extra durability to the product. And then we use the vanilla glaze for high performance computing, for example, where it adds extra wetting of the carbon fibers to the surface. So we, we talked about uh, Carbice, uh, I think two weeks ago, I, I ran across this interesting article, I think on Space News, and they were, they were talking about how thermal management is becoming this bottleneck for the small set industry. Um, and so they talk to a couple of different small set manufacturers and, and purchasers and, you know, basically got quotes of them saying, yes, uh, you know, actually managing our, our thermal load is, is really tough and there's not a lot of good ways to do it. And then they went to a couple of different companies and, and, uh, talked about the different products that they were, um, manufacturing to, you know, solve this problem. And Carvice came up and it was just like, Oh yeah, like of course, like in you know in computers we use thermal paste, but like that's a that's a terrestrial application that you know is is fairly low low demand, right? So that that was the image that that their description brought to mind was oh I see this is a fancy thermal paste, but why is Carbice better than just the thermal paste that's sitting on my CPU? So it's important to kind of laid the, the, the groundwork that all thermal paste sucks. <laughs> right. I'll just leave it. I'll leave it flat like that. And, and, and the reason you know it sucks is because about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, probably 15 years ago, chips made this evolution in their design that had never been in the industry before, where every chip now has a thermocouple built into it. That, that, that didn't used to be the way it went. But there was a product release by Intel that, you know, a million of the chips started having overheating problems before they could actually get them and ship them to customers. And they had to basically redo the product release, costing them millions and millions of dollars. And that was really an industry recognition that because all thermal paste suck, that the only way that you're going to be able to keep up with performance needs is by having thermometers in every chip and throttling the performance back. When it gets too hot so that's that's the baseline and so carbice you know and the reason thermal paste and thermal materials they, they suck and i say it like that because not only do they have the property that you want to conduct heat is a, a thermal conductivity property not only do they have a low thermal conductivity they're messy 
and they're inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So if you ever see people put thermal paste on, there's natural variance in how it's applied to every single interface because every interface has natural variance in the curvature and flatness. So you can't control the process and it's difficult to rework it. So Carbice, we're not doing anything that thermal engineers haven't said would be the ideal solution for years. The ideal solution is to have a solid material that has a very high thermal conductivity that can conform under low pressure to make contact in the interface. And really the only way to do that is with an aligned carpet-like structure at the micro scale, mm-hmm. which is what we make. And so number one, it's not a thermal paste because thermal paste suck. Number two, it's it's a dry material that you can always apply consistently every time, which is mm-hmm. helps tremendously in the manufacturing process, whether on earth or in space. And the material is fundamentally the highest thermal conductivity material in the world. And <laughs> beyond that, you can't make anything more conductive of heat than carbon atoms bonded together. It's by physics, the speed limit. And so that's really why it's a platform to build the future on. And so in many ways, this is not really incremental at all. It's really a new universe of thermal products to solve a problem that's growing in importance every year because of roadmaps with electronics. And in the space industry in particular, because they can't use thermal paste, they use thermal glue, Mm -hmm. which sucks even more. (laughs) 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 And the reason it sucks even more because after you do ground tests and you need to rework a a box, Mm -hmm. you have to take the glue off. And, And you know, the industry standard for taking that glue off is to take fishing line and Ooh. manually scrape oh, through geez. the interface with fishing line and then use a paint scraper and scrape the surface. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, awesome. for a hot second, I, I thought you were going to say, you know, you get that, get out the angle grinder, but I mean, using, that's right. <laughs> wow. That's, it's a uh, terrible, it, it's a terrible process. But I mean, you know, basically when we would go visit these companies in Europe and the US, many of the engineers would come up and show cuts on their hands from wow. reworking boxes and they were like, oh, we can't wait to get this out. But the problem has been, it's been a physics problem because if you yeah. want to replace the glue with a, a dry pad, every dry pad except for carbized carbon has what they call compression set, meaning that when you compress it, eventually it loses its ability to bounce back. And because of that, potted inserts into honeycomb panels get pulled out and you lose torque on your bolts and boxes can fall off in launch mm-hmm. or orbit. Um, they also, because of the deformation mechanics of solid materials, when you press in one area, just like being on a trampoline, it pulls the areas down away from it. That process distorts the box and adds stress to components that can lead to early failure. Hmm. Carbice doesn't have that because carbice is like carpet fibers. When you press in one area with whatever, wherever you press is independent of the other fibers. And so it doesn't transfer stress like these other materials. So it's a real science solution yeah. that we deliver in a simple package product that we just say looks like black aluminum foil. Yeah, no, I, I had watched uh, one of the videos on your website and the weights that you were applying to the carbice. Um, mm-hmm. I thought you were going to stop at some point, but you kept applying more and more. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you, could see, you would see it snap back, like, like yeah, on the scale. It's just really we, impressive. We like to make people real uneasy by adding that amount of weight. <laughs> 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 it's that, that's, a, that's a unique thing because with thermal paste and any other thermal interface material, one of the hardest things to design it into a package is figuring out the application window. 
and, and a lot of, in every material except for carbides, there's a minimum required pressure and there's a maximum pressure in which the material works. And it doesn't apply to carbides carbon. You can use it at any pressure. You can use it at pressures that are a hundred times higher than any pressure that a thermal interface material has ever survived. And it's, it's reversible too. And so because of that type of durability, people actually use our material. They, they do ground testing. They take the box off and then they reuse the same material for what they use for flight hardware. This sounds like some pretty miraculous stuff. So I imagine that you've also found applications for it down here on Earth. And and actually, I'm kind of weird. I don't own an Xbox, but I've seen everybody talk about the Xbox trick where you got to put like a penny on the processor. You know, like this whole heat transfer thing is like, you know, a big deal. And so if this can actually help in a big way with that, then that kind of is like a game changer. No pun intended. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you know, I have a confession because I, I spent 10 years uh, teaching heat transfer at Georgia Tech. It's really my fault that we didn't teach people how to do thermal interface engineering. And, you know, I say that because it's it's one of those black arts of industry, just like you're talking about putting pennies on stuff. Mm-hmm. That people have so many different magical tricks <laughs> that they do for, <laughs> for thermal interfacing. So, so we're this year just going into terrestrial applications in high performance computing. And, and one of, and the reason for that is, is it's a business strategy for how do you grow a startup? You know, it, it's, you know, when you, there aren't very many successful material startups, number one. And it's not a very appetizing investment for most investors because they understand a lot of pitfalls. And one of them, the major one is scaling. And so, so we have strategically focused on maturing manufacturing while service, servicing the space market and the semiconductor manufacturing market. But we've hit some tremendous milestones on that. And we, we have a mature manufacturing process that's, that's, you know, we've already scaled a couple generations. Mm. Uh, those are the things that you have to get in place before you go into gaming or high performance computing because the volumes are so high. Mm-hmm. You have to have a mature process because if you win, if you win something with something you can't scale, then you're just wasting people's time. Yeah. And that, that's such a cool life trajectory to take for a company because space is perfect. There are relatively high budgets. I mean, for, you know, a single application. Um, and there's relatively, well, not even relatively, there's very low volumes required and you can get a foot in. That's, that's actually something I never thought about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's I, you know, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a long background in materials. And I when I was doing my PhD at Purdue, I had the uh, opportunity to consult for a few material startups. And this whole idea of how do you get to market was one of the biggest challenges that I identified everybody having. And, hmm. you know, how do you how do you manage the right applications, the right problem sets? And and to be honest, at Carbice, we, we kind of got lucky because I didn't know about how much the thermal glue sucked for the space industry when I started Carbice. Um, it was something that we just worked on a few things here. We had some government grants um, and this, the space companies kind of found us and, and they reached out to mm-hmm. us and said, hey, this, you know, can your material help us with this problem? And they said, ah, you know, leave us alone. You know, your volumes are too small. We're not focused on that. And they really were very persistent and got us to look at that. And so, you know, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, I look back and say, hey, we were brilliant. That's a great strategy, (laughs) you know, because this was this this was this was a really bad problem. And, you know, it's a right market size for us. But I think moving forward, you know, that's the advice I give to people is you got to find markets like space um, 
or defense or even it could be something on earth like laser diodes for example mm-hmm. that's that's another area that we've we've started to branch into because it's kind of a bridge between the volumes of space and the volumes of a data center. Mm. So, so how did how did space companies find you to begin mar- knocking down your door? Were you just showing up at trade shows or something like? So we we partnered with a company on a Air Force SBIR grant, uh. and the goal was to develop a thermal interface that worked at very very low contact pressure. And frankly, Carbice just did the work to just have some research funding to kind of move the move the ball forward. This is back when we were just kind of an IP holding company. And so when we finished the project and published the results, the space company saw it. Uh, it was, it was some sort of internal government presentation or, or publication by the, by the uh, Air Force. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really that that one of the, the big primes saw and then start reaching out to us. And then I, mm-hmm. after that, we kind of learned through with working with them about this problem with the glue, the insert pullouts, the, uh, distortion and stress on boxes. And then we went to a, uh, a pitch day, December 2017. And I'll never forget it because it was a starburst uh, in uh, San Diego. And I, my, my CTO and I went there and we saw the other people pitching. Rocket Labs actually pitched before mm-hmm. us, right? Mm-hmm. And I looked at my CTO and said, what are we doing here? I, who, I mean, who, who, who is going to care about what we do when there's a 3D printed rocket? <laughs> But but I I, I kid you not, when we got on the stage and start talking about insert pullout and bolt torque loss, every single person in the audience starts shaking their head. And and when I and and when I sat down, people were literally throwing their business cards at us. (laughs) And I said, I think we might be on to something. Yeah. I mean, good. Good old Seabra. I mean, like that. That'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. I should have. I should have Google. I should have searched the Zebra contracts to see if you were in there. Because yeah, that's that'll do it. So you had mentioned about the problems that you have encountered with scaling up, or that you might encounter. So what are the specifics of that? Because I've heard that carbon nanotube manufacturing is very difficult to do. Um, is that something that you have to deal with, or is there something different about this specific product that makes it a little bit easier? Um, and, and I'm guessing it might be just because you're not producing a lot of it yet, because it's just a thin sheet for these very small devices but i mean is that like a huge challenge i mean are, are any of you pet pet owners got an uh, indoor pet like a dog or cat not at the moment for me no, too many yes. The other two. Yes. Yeah. yes yes yeah. i mean you know how you know how if your pet early on or, or whatever it has an accident on the carpet and you try to clean it and it but the carpet's never the same it's never really the same yeah. <laughs> that, that's 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 what it is to be in a materials manufacturing company and and it's like if you don't start from the beginning in the right way. You're going to be trying to clean up pet urine for the entire existence of your co- your company. Uh. So the thing is that you you have to be thoughtful about what are the challenges and build a product that is inherently scalable. That's that's the difference, right? I mean, I, I you know, like I said, I've been working in carbon nanotubes since 1999. You know, one of the longest tenures in this field. And what you see is that if you get kind of sucked into designing a product first and then thinking about manufacturing second, then you're going to be in problems that you never can get out of. And so that's where Carbice is different, is that our foundational IP was focused on manufacturing. And it was focused on manufacturing in a product form that we knew would eventually uh, evolve to meet and exceed all the market needs. 
And so so really the, the thing that we look at when you start that way, so that's the first step is that you have to spend the time. And I was fortunate because during my time as a professor at Georgia Tech, I could be incubating and working on ideas. Um, so you start that way. And then once you start that way, you have to recognize the learning curve that's required always for scaling a materials manufacturing process and build that into your funding process. And so that, that's really that's really how we de-risk our bias is that um, we didn't raise venture capital money too soon. We use government uh, funding in terms of grants with the Army and Air Force and performed on projects for them and the National Science Foundation. And so then you get a chance to uh, move through the different generations and understand. And, I, and I'll give a very specific example. A lot of times with carbon nanotubes, just like you heard, people say they're scaling challenges. People say uh, they're too expensive. People, people say a lot of stuff, but they don't really know what they're talking about unless they've actually spent a lot of time doing it. And that's the thing that's been missing with carbon nanotubes because the people who say a lot have been people who maybe have had a few research projects over a few years doing it. And that's just not enough time for any material technology to mature mm -hmm. in manufacturing. You're gonna have to spend a half a decade at a minimum in order to do that. And that, that was really the strategy of Carbice was to do that in a low cost, de-risk way. And you know, at this point, the biggest scaling challenges for us are really more business related in terms of hiring more people, scaling business systems and operations, rather than worrying so much about fundamental physics of manufacturing equipment. So so when you're talking about building that into your design, building scalability into your design, are, are you having to just choose between choice A and choice B and they're roughly equally valued for the performance of the material and you just don't know which one to choose unless you're looking ahead? Or are you actually being presented with A, which is better in terms of manufacturing and B, which is better in terms of performance? And because you're looking forward, do you can better weight that decision at the end. And if you could give us some examples of specifics where you were making those decisions, I'd love to hear. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I, the first principles approach that we take is, you know, first the carbon nanotube, you know that it is the best thermal conductor and you know also that it must be aligned. So then you ask the question, how do you create that form factor? The only way to create a, aligned carbon nanotube form factor where it is aligned vertically, you know, so that it is to do it on a substrate, right? Mm -hmm. There's some people who make carbon nanotubes, uh, they're sh sheets and they mm -hmm. can do it without a substrate. And I, and one of my friends started this company, Nanocomp, um, he was a CTO and I, and they made tremendous scales with these sheets, but you, but you can't with that process, make them go through the thickness, which is what you need mm -hmm. for a thermal interface. So so here, so the boundary conditions get set up. You you must grow it on a substrate. So then the second choice is that there's some people in Japan and other countries that have made attempts to make carbon nanotube thermal interfaces in the US as well. And they fill the nanotubes with a matrix material and take them off the substrate. So then you you you're you're presented with the idea that if you have to take something off of a substrate, you're going to introduce complexity and cost. Mm -hmm. So then, then then you say, well, the, if you have to grow it on a substrate in order for it to be aligned, then is there a way to make the substrate functional in the part of the product? And that's that was the first step in making a manufacturing process up front. And that's why we use aluminum 
we have aluminum foil. Then it just told us that the only way that you were ever going to make a cost-effective, scalable, aligned carbon nanotube thermal interface was that the substrate was going to be a part of the product. You check that box. Then you go to the part of, okay, what are the fundamental problems that exist with the metrics required to meet manufacturing at scale? Well, one is yield, your ability to have uniformity of production over area. The other is growth rate, your ability to grow these things at a certain rate that makes economic sense. And the other is, can you actually get the material to stick to the substrate? And it turns out that you couldn't get all those buckets checked with everything that had been done before. You couldn't have material carbon nanotubes that stuck to the substrate, grew at a fast growth rate, and had good uniformity of growth over an area. You always got one or two and never three. That was really the IP of Carbice. We did thousands of experiments to come up with a catalysis so that the seed layer for growing these carbons, a catalysis geometry and chemistry that allow for the first time ever you to have excellent adhesion to the substrate, high growth rate, and high uniformity of coverage over an area. And so that, that was our process. And like once we had that process, we said, look, we're never deviating from this foundation because there's really no sense in going any other way because we've already gone through all the decision trees to get to the point of what's going to actually allow you to scale. Because thermal paste and grease are not things that cost as much as CPUs, right? They have a price point and the optics of pricing in the market that if you can't get close to it, you know, you may be able to get someone to pay two or three times what they pay nominally for things today if it has better performance. But to get somebody to pay a thousand times more, a hundred times more, even if it, the performance may warrant it, the optics of that's just not going to go for business, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that that's how we think about manufacturing. That's what I really mean when I say that you have to be thoughtful about those fundamental choices up front, because if you make the wrong choices up front, if you commit to another process and you mature that into products, it's it, there's no going back. It's it's too expensive to do that. That is more fundamental than than I'd imagined. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and so it's interesting that you you mentioned that it's the catalyst chemistry that's allowing you to do this. So you happen to pick aluminum foil, but it's not like you're using, you know, some special thin layer anodization, you know, magical aluminum foil. That, and that's not the key to your product. In fact, the key to your product never leaves the factory, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, well, the key to the product is multifactorial. You know, it's really, it's really you, you have to have the right catalyst chemistry and structure. You have to have the right processing, right? It's a three-step manufacturing process. You put it into these reactors and the processing has to be right. The recipes have to be right. So it's, it's really, you know, and that's really how we build IP at Carbice is that you have these things that we patent that we know that are going to be uh, discoverable by other people. But then 90% of it's just trade secrets and recipes and things that you put into it that affect certain parts of performance that make it very unique. How long is the manufacturing process like for an individual strip? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you know, if you think about how we do this, we, we make this, um, you know, we make sheets like we have this massive batch process and it's only a matter of minutes to grow the material. Right. So oh, wow. it's fast. And that's that's a game changing stack. I mean, I, if you you know, I, I talked to a lot of different researchers from my experience and, you know, growing carbon nanotubes can take hours for a lot of people. 
right? And that's that's not going to give you the throughput that you need in order to make things cost effective and have good quality. But it's really not just the speed, though, too. You have to have yield, right? And we have a pretty efficient process um, that generates over 90% yield out of our production. And, and so... Um, you're growing on on both sides of the aluminum foil. Does that take two different steps, or can you do that in in one step? We do it in one step. So it, it's actually kind kind of nice that that two sided works out well, because that way you don't have to protect the other side. You just throw it all in and and run it. Mm. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah you got to drive towards simplicity, and yeah. and um, and that's that's really the the key in materials is that complexity is what's going to prevent you from scaling. It just popped in my head. Can I ask now? I mean, I'm sensing a theme here. Did you like take like finance courses or marketing courses or something at one point? <laughs> like <laughs> seemed, the company is very much designed with like, you know, how to be successful in, you know, to market in mind. I mean, like, did you have you always? Yeah. Could you, I, could you, speak you know what? <laughs> I've always had businesses from being a little kid and having a lemonade stand, right? And uh, I, you know, I, I don't know if you, I don't know how old you guys are, but um, back in the 90s, the early 90s, uh, before the internet was like anything mm -hmm. that real people had, you used to watch infomercials late at night and they used to right. sell these um, opportunities to do advertisements for 1-800 numbers. It was like a business thing that people, and I, I used to, I, my cousin and I used to do that in the summer times. You like make flyers, you go advertise, put them up in restaurants. Uh, so I've always, I've always been doing things like this. And uh, when I was a, a student at Vanderbilt, you know, I, I played football at Vanderbilt. So I was a walk on that got a scholarship, had a bunch of knee injuries. I, I had a, that's a separate interview and story. But mm -hmm. through that process, I've always been a technical guy interested in business. Mm -hmm. And not just business, but I've been a technical guy interested in, you know, humans and just how people think about things. And that's really why I went to Vanderbilt, because I wanted to do engineering, but I wanted to take philosophy, uh, anthropology, economics, and more materially to Carbice, I audited a MBA class with one of my friends, um, Pat Green, who uh, was big offensive lineman on our football team and got his MBA at Vanderbilt. Uh, a huge guy. He's my roommate. He's like six, seven, 350 pounds. Uh, very nice, gentle giant. But we, we started this new ventures class together and he was taking it for credit. And then we created an engineering software company because my father, who, uh, is a mechanical engineer had always written his own analysis software. Um, and he always talked generally about starting a business related to it. And I said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do that. Let's do that now. And so I, we actually, we, it was called easy chem DB <laughs> and uh, we, we, it was this chemical property database where you could do thermodynamic tables with any mixture of chemical properties. This is what he had, had coded. And uh, that was, a you know, so I, I started a business before Carbice and I was interested in it enough to sit and take a class without credit just to do it. And I think all of that really fed into how to think about doing something that's really hard, which is a materials company, right? So I, mm -hmm. it's just that diverse background. Like I, you know, I even spent time in real estate shortly after that, uh, flipping houses before the, before that led to the economy uh, collapsing. Um, so, so, so I made no money doing that. It was, I was very, ter I was terrible at it, which is why I decided <laughs> I need to go get a PhD. <laughs> Yeah, so so Bar, I noticed um, that you you know you use for your substrate recycled aluminum specifically. What led to that design choice? What led to that was just that, I mean, practically speaking, for the process, there's no difference in using 
pristine or recycled aluminum. So why not use recycles? I mean, why not? And and the fact that you know when we we ship out cut parts to our customers, so we have scrap from cutting in house, and we collect it ah. all, and we take all of our scrap to the aluminum can recycling facility. Okay, I mean that that makes sense. <laughs> so so wait, are are you making are you like sheeting your own foil, or you're taking it to a recycler who's then giving it back to you? Yeah, I mean we don't do our we're, we're not at a scale yet where it makes sense yeah. to do our own sheeting. Um, yeah. and so we just take our scrap and we just put it in the can facility, and somebody it just oh, goes into the ecosystem at this point. Um, but we 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 just don't. The point of it is that we just don't have any. We don't we don't generate new aluminum in the ecosystem. Yeah. And uh-huh. I think that's an important thing because all thermal paste and thermal interface materials today are not recyclable and they contribute to the tremendous amounts of electronic waste. Because one of the reasons that people have throw a PCB board into the landfill is because it doesn't make economic sense to spend the labor to take the glue off to get the components off. So Carbice is really, you know, we see a bigger vision to be able to contribute to a lot more sustainability in the electronics ecosystem. So we, we just feel like even though we don't get to leverage, um, you know, sheeting our own metal and like the cost savings of using a lot uh, uh, recycled aluminum today ourselves, it, it's if you don't build the platform right. Right. So like just I think you guys are getting my theme. What I'm what, what I'm saying about recycling 10 years or 15 years from now, wherever Carbice is, will be a, a an economic benefit to the company itself because mm-hmm. we built it in. But you, it's not something you could build in later if you already committed to stainless steel or copper or some other process yeah like you're saying the uh the pet on the carpet (laughs) that's right (laughs) well this is gonna this is gonna sound kind of nasty but like i can't wait to see the problem that you haven't foreseen because that's gonna be that's gonna be a a you know, an, an interesting problem and an important problem. And then it's going to be really cool to see how it's overcome. Uh, Cause it's, it sounds like you've, you know, planned out so much of this already. And it's, it's really cool. Well, no, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. The goal with planning out and what I've articulated is really just in a few areas, like the mm. big problems. And this is general about anything. I think in life, everybody knows what the big problems are, whether mm. it's in a company or society or your own household. Plan for how you address the big problems long-term. That's the Carbice way. We have a million small problems every single day, every single week that we that throw, you know, throw us in different directions. We come up with different approaches to, um, and we, you know, one of the problems, I'll give you an example of a problem that I, I didn't quite understand that we had to pivot on in a six month period is that one of the main problems with innovation in thermal interfaces is the way that the corporations are structured. And what I mean by that is that the thermal engineer is the lowest person from a technical standpoint on the totem pole. The electrical people, the product people, the structural people always get to make design decisions before things get passed to the thermal people. And because of this, the thermal people have the hardest problems to solve with the least amount of resource. So what happens is that, and this is another thing, everybody else has predictive software. The thermal people, because an interface depends on how you assemble it and the other things, there's no predictive modeling that you can do, mm. which means that you always have to test. And if you always have to test, that means it's always expensive to do development and solution finding. And so what we learned is that no matter, sometimes no matter how good the material is, if the thermal engineer can't get a budget and can't convince people and they don't have that skill set, the project will go nowhere. 
And so you'll just languish trying to push this into the market for years and years and years. That really hit us hard. And that's one of the reasons why we didn't raise a lot of money early, too, because we, we were just like, we know there are things that we don't know and we better find them out. And that was one of the things I'm so happy we found out, because what we end up doing to address it is just taking a close look on how we could control that process and understanding the unique physics of our material and the fact that we have been around collecting data on our material for so long, we were able to, in a six month period, pull together our own semi-empirical predictive modeling capability. So that instead of the thermal engineer having to reach out and ask for three different data sheets on three different products, uh, ask for a budget, test all three of them, they usually don't align with anything that they thought based on data sheets, so they have to do that. They now can reach out to us and tell us what their uh, interface area is, the number of fasteners in the location, the thickness of the plates, uh, the amount of pressure they're applying, and we can put that into a model that tells them exactly what product is going to work and exactly the performance in the application. And we have been in a six month period, we got that validated on 56 unique designs and it matched within 5% what people measured in TVAC measurements. And so, so that's, that's something that we had to learn that. And once we learned it, my CTO brilliantly pulled together this data set and that modeling capability has been so powerful that when we present it to new customers now, they ask us how much do we charge to use it. Right. Right. And we, we just we just give it away for free because we just like we want to be helpful so you don't have to waste time. And and what they do is that they can go and give a presentation to their management with confidence. And instead of having to buy a bunch of materials and have a long test window, they can buy one material and have a short test window and get to a confident solution. So we, we're learning. I mean, I just wanted to say that to say that yeah. the, the thing, there's certain <laughs> things that you you can't avoid having to be ready to learn new things and move forward. But what makes a materials company different from a SaaS company um, is that there's certain things that are the kiss of death. And if you identify those three or four things that are the kiss of death, you better spend a lot of time planning that out before you decide to take money and move forward with it. Well, no, I, I think that's a really a, a really fantastic answer because you you're basically redefining what you are going to predict in a manner that allows you to foresee all of your problems. You you don't say I'm going to foresee every single problem, just the really big ones that are going to be an issue. And like, that's actually like good life advice. I think <laughs> <laughs> it, it is life. you know, frankly, the philosophy comes from my own life. Like I, you know, if I, like I have a varied experience as I share some of what, of, of which with you all. And I think that just approaching business with more life perspective, in general, it's what we all talk call wisdom as we get older, right? You just want to be able to apply it. All right. Well, um, we're going to go ahead and, and start wrapping up here. Um, so our traditional penultimate question is, where would you like to be found on the internet? The best place to find us is uh, at uh, carbice.com. You can also find us at carbicemagic.com. You can see a little bit about kind of our bigger vision. Uh, you can look at our, our LinkedIn page. Um, that link will be in the show notes. And we, we are very active there. We put a lot of videos on our LinkedIn about how to use our product, how to rework it, uh, competitive benchmarking, 
Um, but you can find us on social media uh, at Carbice on Twitter, uh, at Carbice Magic on Instagram. So, uh, Bara, let's assume you uh, are traveling off into uh, space on a nice little uh, spacecraft using your fine uh, thermal products. And uh, <laughs> you can bring one object with you into into space. What would it be? I'm going to have to take like my iPad with a bunch of downloaded books. Cause I got a long ride ahead of me, there and I like to and I and I like to read. Yeah, that's a good answer. It's a good practical answer, because yeah. you can do a lot with an iPad. Yeah, sometimes people bring just their favorite book or something like that, but yeah, right, just totally yeah. load up your iPad. I'm gonna load my iPad up, yeah, and, and hope that I have good battery life or access to power. Yeah, we'll give you life support. We'll give you a USB. As well. Okay. Okay. I appreciate we'll, that. We'll let you charge. Uh, okay. So, so can you can you name one book as your favorite? Like, even if it's just your momentary favorite right now? I, I mean, right now we're on book four of the Harry Potter series with my nine year old daughter. Oh yeah. So, um, I would take the whole all seven of them. Uh, yeah. So that's my momentary fa favorite because she's so into it right now, and I and I'm loving mm -hmm. it. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Um, it's been great talking to you and, and learning about this really interesting uh, technology. Like this is something that kind of came mm. out of the blue for us. Yeah. It's not one of the things that we typically talk about. So thank you so much. Thank you guys. Th thank you, Dennis, David, Ben. I mean, this has been, it's always an opportunity um, that I cherish to talk about curb ice and kind of introduce people to the fascinating world of nanomaterials. Moving on to this week in space history, we have no winners. So the clue was setting up Orion for a fatal misidentification. Yeah, sorry, sorry. That is definitely a hard clue. Yeah, yeah. that's, I mean, I didn't get it, even though I knew what the answer was, I still didn't get the connection with the clue. So that's definitely yeah. a tough one. Yeah, sorry. But uh, this week in space history is the birth of Abe Silverstein, and that was on the 15th of September, 1908. So we kind of knew that it was, you know, most likely the birth of somebody because it's just so long ago. And it is kind of mm. interesting because that this, I think, goes back further than maybe like any other clue we've ever had, 1908. There might have been something in the late 1800s, but I doubt it. Sorry, we, we did have a birth in 1906. Um, oh, okay. Elaine Galloway. Oh. Okay, so that must be the earliest one then. Okay, Elaine Galloway. But uh, yeah, this one in 1908, still pretty far back, uh, the birth of Abe Silverstein in Terre Haute, Indiana. Very important person within NASA and previous to that, NACA, so, which I guess goes without saying given uh, uh, how... Ah, uh, it's, it's NACA. Yeah. Oh, sorry. N it's an initialism, I like saying, not an acronym. <laughs> I hate... In my head, it's, it'll always be NACA. I know, mm -hmm. the and, NACA. And, 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 you know, these days everybody pronounces it NACA, so it's, it's fine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's it's fun to be pedantic when you know we all know that that it's okay. <laughs> I learned it as NACA because I didn't know any better. I didn't know it was supposed mm -hmm. to be you know the NACA because I mean NASA you know like you already I, I have that precedent. I think the fact that there. it was NACA is like more trivia than anything. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Abe earned a BS in 1929 in mechanical engineering and a master's of engineering, which is not a master's in engineering, but a, a master's of engineering, which is a degree where you might have gotten a, a master's degree, which I didn't. 
understand the distinction there. Hmm. Uh, and he got that in 1934. He was hired by NACA, or sorry, he was hired by the <laughs> by the NACA in 1929 uh, at the Langley Aeronautical Laboratory, where he aided in the design of the Altitude Wind Tunnel, which was built in Cleveland at the Lewis Laboratory, which is now the Glenn Research Center. So uh, again, this is all going so far back that everything has a different name. So you have to kind of keep track. <laughs> so his uh, his work at Langley led to the increased high speed performance of aircraft during World War II because they were able to do you know high speed wind tunnel testing. One interesting thing about his research uh, has to do with jet engines because uh, this is at the birth of the jet engine itself. They were able to resolve a certain issue with engine cooling by installing baffles into the engine. Now I don't understand much more beyond that. I'm assuming since it has to do with cooling, it has something to do with the turbine side of things where you know downstream of the exhaust. So I don't know the details, but basically this was a Wright R3350 engine. So yeah, the first part of his career has a lot to do with wind tunnels and jet engines. In 1944, uh, he uh, joined the high-speed panel and advocated for the supersonic wind tunnel. And that was completed in 1949. And of course, it was the world's first supersonic propulsion wind tunnel. He had done so well at the Lewis Center that he was actually made the associate director at that center in 1952. And he also created two new divisions within that lab, one of which was the nuclear reactor division and the other was the fluids systems component division um, and this was to study nuclear propulsion and cryogenic fuels so during world war ii he was able to convince the higher-ups that they should pursue liquid hydrogen for a military aircraft so this is not spacecraft yet they actually integrated liquid hydrogen into the b-57 canberra which is an aircraft that flew for many years and obviously was not fueled by hydrogen but for just a couple of missions uh, they were able to pull that off successfully although it mm. didn't take hold so that was uh, their first foray into using liquid hydrogen as a fuel. I think that was the first time it was ever used as a fuel for, for anything. I mean, at least anything that flew. Yeah, I could believe that. There's there's a, a free PDF, a very short kind of book called um, From I Ideas into Hardware, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the, the rocket engine test facility at Lewis back in the day. And they were kind of just like on their own investigating liquid fuels because at this point we kind of didn't know what we were going to be using. <laughs> yeah. So as things started to evolve, and specifically because of the Sputnik program in the Soviet Union, he had advocated for the creation of NASA, which surprisingly some people were still hesitant about in Congress, but eventually, you know, they were won over once they realized just, you know, how much progress was being made in the Soviet Union. And so he was appointed chief of spaceflight programs, which was the third in command at NASA. So he had planned several missions there. He had a role in the creation of the Goddard Space Flight Center, which is very cool. And he is the one who named the Mercury and Apollo programs. And so this is where mm -hmm. the clue comes in, setting up Orion for a fatal misidentification. So I'm just going to read what Ben posted here for the clue because he's the one who came up with it. Yeah, sorry. The Apollo program will be succeeded by the Artemis program. The name Artemis was chosen because she was the sister of Apollo. Orion, the god, not the spacecraft, was accidentally murdered by Artemis when she saw him swimming to shore, didn't recognize him, and thought he was an enemy combatant shot and killed him. And I'm assuming that's shot with an arrow. <laughs> and then you wrote that um, it's a funny quirk of nomenclature that the spacecraft is named after someone killed by the namesake of the program and that Silverstein didn't see the irony coming and picked the name Apollo. So basically, this has to do with Greek mythology and how Apollo was shot and killed by Artemis. Um, or no, I'm sorry, and how Orion was shot and killed by Artemis. Yeah. So that is pretty... Yeah. Yeah, that's some... <laughs> well, my, I mean... My I, bad. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know, like, I, I think that's fair. Everybody was kind of poking fun at um 
when they first announced Artemis was going to be the name of the program because everybody was pointing yeah. out Artemis killed Orion. So I thought that exactly. was fair. I was, it might have been just figuring... tying it to Abe maybe was the, the stumbling block. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think I think a fatal misidentification is part of the stumbling block um, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that. That doesn't immediately call to mind the idea of Artemis and Orion, I guess. Yeah. Oh, I didn't wow. know the story, so. Yeah, apparently neither did anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would make a good clue if the answer was, you know, identifying a specific aspect of Greek mythology, then you'd be like, oh, yeah, that was the time that Orion was shot by Artemis. But, um, but yeah, you have to go one step further, you know, like you have to first identify yeah. the mythological reference and then, then how that applies to this. So, yeah. So if Abe Silverstein was the one who had named these programs, I guess, was he responsible for starting the whole, you know, like naming things after gods, uh, shtick or whatever you want to call it. Because I if so, don't believe so. I mean, probably not just because like many things have been named after Greek and Roman gods, but still, I think this was the first time it was done within, I mean, you know, just because these were the first programs within the newly formed NASA. So I guess. Well, well yeah. And I mean, early, early, you know, military rockets were also named like Jupiters and. Okay. Titans. Well, so yeah, right. So it wouldn't. It wouldn't be Apollo. It would be Mercury, if anything. Right. Well, okay. Which, I mean, he did name Mercury. So I'm just wondering if if there was anything preceding that um, that was also named after a Greek or Roman god because, you know, that's just all anyone does anymore. (laughs) And (laughs) I guess maybe he set that into motion. So I was just wondering if maybe in, you know, like an alternate history, if he had named it after like presidents or something, then that's what, you know, we would be doing. Apparently, like Redstone only stuck with Redstone. You know what I mean? Like... So that was named after a place, but otherwise they all, I, I don't know. I feel like, I mean, you can imagine, right? You're a military person or, you know, you know and you're thinking, you know, I want to create this thing that's going to go into the heavens and, you know, mm-hmm. rain down destruction on my enemies. So you pick, you know, these powerful supernatural beings to name them after. Yeah. I mean, I could see a logic behind that. I don't know though, I, you know. No, no, I, I think it's actually correct. I'm reading an article on astronomy.com. Uh, titled Naming Apollo, Why NASA Chooses Greek Gods as Names. And they're actually, Ooh. yeah, citing Silverstein. So originally, the task group suggested the name Project Astronaut uh, for Mercury. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Oh, boy. Very uh-huh. self-explanatory. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and so Silverstein specifically said, others at Oh, uh, no, Matt, uh, historian Matthew Hirsch said others at NASA feared this name would draw undue attention to the personalities of the handpicked aviators whom NASA's yeah. army of engineers would soon blast into space. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, Silverstein comes along and says, well, let's call it Mercury. And it, it sounds like that might actually be one of the very first uh, yeah, Greek god names. That's kind of neat to me that that's where it all starts. But uh, I'm a little bit miffed because uh, we should pick some other names because I get tired of all the and that's just because I get them all confused. Like I can't keep track. I, I just don't know my mythology that well, which, you know, clearly because I didn't get the clue. But um, mm-hmm. we should move on to like, I don't know, something else. N- something not mythological because there are other mythological traditions to drop. Upon. And like, yeah. if you look at the names of moons, there are a lot of really good other mythologies used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like a lot of Hawaiian ones I've noticed mm-hmm. and some other ones. Um, Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You know yeah. what? That's a good one. Let's 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 start picking Shakespeare characters or just famous <laughs> characters from movies or something or science fiction characters. Anything. 
so getting back to um, his involvement with liquid hydrogen, because this is important, uh, he was part of the Saturn vehicle team, and he was tasked with developing the upper stage. And uh, he was the one that basically convinced Von Braun to use liquid hydrogen. And that kind of surprised me because I figured he would have, you know, been on board with that from the get-go. But apparently, since this is, you know, obviously can be a very problematic substance to deal with, um, that was something that Von Braun did not want to use. Um, so it took some convincing. Again, it's actually because of him that they began using liquid hydrogen, which I'm sure was an idea waiting to happen. But, you know, he was the one who really set it into motion. And I think I think the fact that Von Braun had never worked in hydrogen before was important. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. he, he had already decided how he was going to go to the moon long ago. Mm-hmm. And I think just the fact that it had never been an available propellant to use, you know, he wasn't even thinking about it. He needed somebody to come in and go, hey, well, what about... What about this? We know this works. Or we, we know that this is very explosive. <laughs> the math says it should work. Let's figure it out. And that's the thing that kind of surprised me was that it is the best fuel for, you know, like an upper stage. I mean, it's just the best thing that you can use for a second stage because it has a high specific impulse. Mm-hmm. So, but I guess, you know, like you said, he did the math and he concluded that you don't have to use liquid hydrogen. You could use something else. Von Braun had said that they do have to look towards the future. So, yes, let's go ahead and switch over. So, I think that he knew that it was coming. He just mm-hmm. maybe didn't want to use it for the Apollo program, but he was was convinced. So Silverstein was a big advocate for using liquid hydrogen, both in aircraft and eventually in spacecraft. So after the Apollo program, he had transferred back to the Lewis Research Center and uh, he became the director of that center. He undertook the development of the Centaur upper stage, which is still used to this day and is a liquid hydrogen stage. So uh, he had a very important role there. And then just as the Apollo missions were getting going, he actually retired in 1969. He kind of called it right there. But again, this is a guy born in 1908. So you might be asking yourself why he retired so early, but it's actually not early. What mm. what date did he retire in? Um, I don't know specifically, but since it was 69, it might have been just prior, just after, probably just prior, right? Because the first I, mission was in. I would really hope that it would be, you know, right after the moon landing. He goes, okay, cool. I'm out. I got some painting yeah. to do. So uh, once he retired, he was involved in some other things. He mostly collected awards. So he had many honorary degrees and he also received the Guggenheim Medal, which is a very prestigious award. And he was also part of an organization called, or actually he helped found an organization called the Cleveland Council on Soviet Antisemitism because he was of Jewish ancestry. This was an organization that was founded to help combat antisemitism that was occurring in the Soviet Union at that time. From there, I don't have too much else on the rest of his uh, his life because, again, he was born in 1908 and he indeed mm-hmm. lived all the way till 2001. So he lived to be 92 years old. He died on June 1st of 2001. So uh, a very, very long storied life. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, you couldn't cover it all in just uh, one This Week in Space Flight History because it would have to be probably twice as long. So with that, uh, I have a clue for next week. Uh, next week's This Week in Space Flight History, which will be much easier, I promise to guess. And that was in 1999. And the clue is, what's that in Pirate Ninjas? Uh, if you know what that is in reference to, and I think that many people do actually, uh, <laughs> give us a tweet with the hashtag This Week SF and good luck. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events, we just have one, and that's a SpaceX launch. So our only launch of the week uh, is going to be on uh, September 17th, and it's a Falcon 9 Block 5 that'll be taking Starlink 12 into orbit. Uh, so expect uh, so keep an eye out for this uh, again on September 17th at uh, 18-1700 uh, UTC, flying out of Launch Complex 39A. And that's your upcoming spaceflight event. Just that one. And so with that, let's do over the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. 
thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.